be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. In this episode, we revisit the toolbox killers who targeted girls aged 13 to 19 with their ultimate goal of raping and murdering at least one from each age, but their spree included much more. They used tools to mutilate their victims while they were still alive, and one such brutal and terrifying moment was recorded on audio tape. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter, And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I am Dave Jari. And I'm Garrett Quarter. How you doing, buddy? Good, 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 good. So we have another criminal in our family. We got another one? Another oh, one. God, I love, I love you guys. It's just like, bam, 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 bam. I love you guys. So shout out to Devin Dean. Devin Dean. Yes. Thank you so much. That's much appreciated. So Dave. Yes. I got to say, though, before you came over, yeah. I did a quick thumb through through our merch shop. Oh, yeah. And listen, listen, I'm not, I know I'm subjective, but that's... So it's our podcast, but God damn, our merch is good. Yeah. <laughs> There's some good shit on there. Yes. You know, Dave's not just a true crime podcaster. He also might be a graphic designer. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love it, though, guys. Go check it out. All the new stuff is really funny. You know, we got some we got some trolley-ish stuff, yeah. <laughs> and we got some, like, seriously cool stuff. Yeah, man. I'm wearing one right now, and shit, I'm... I'm legit thinking about just like making my entire wardrobe just criminal af stuff you know what i mean you're gonna go to yoga with your yeah criminal AF yoga mat grab too? my yoga mat yeah make a shower curtain well i mean if you're gonna rep you gotta rep the number one true crime oh, podcast everywhere you go in the world in the world Listen, yeah. it doesn't matter what you guys see online with what you know number rankings whatever we are it's all fake news we're number one <laughs> we're, we're number one okay <laughs> Okay. We're huge. <laughs> huge. <laughs> <laughs> so, just a reminder, this is a true crime podcast. There will be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language. Like? 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 Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> as our name applies, criminal as fuck. Now, we understand that criminal AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. See ya. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the, the debauchery. debauchery. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're going to start it off today. Okay. With a little bit of Florida man of the day. Yes, sir. <laughs> This one's a good one. Okay, I'm ready for it. Tampa, Florida. Okay. Actually, under underrated city in Florida, by the way. Tampa? I listen, yes, I you, I like the nice places in Florida, but Tampa is a fun spot. A yeah. fun spot. A lot of bar like a lot of bar hopping. Yeah. It's, it's it's very nice. It's a little It's it's home to my uh, favorite amusement park. What? Tampa Bush Gardens. I've never been to Bush Gardens. Oh my god. No, listen. When so the, I my, got fa this. my family went to Disney and Universal <laughs> and we went on oh, vacation. You're bougie. <laughs> we didn't get to go to Tampa Bush Gardens. I'm telling you, bro. They have like if anybody knows me, I'm like obsessed with cheetahs. I love cheetahs. I even have one tattooed right here in my hand. And they have an amazing cheetah exhibit. And they have probably the ro best roller coaster ever made. And it's, I mean, it's called Cheetah. But, I mean, it's just, it's awesome. Sound a little biased. <laughs> yeah. Tampa's nice, though. I yeah. do like Tampa. It's, it's fun. It's not nice because there's a lot of shady stuff, but I love shady stuff. So yeah. I would take a dive bar over some high-end oh, stuff all day. I yeah. love dive bars. All right. Tampa, Florida. Okay. A Florida man was arrested Friday for driving a stolen pickup truck to, <laughs> to a Space Force base in Brooklyn. Brevard County, in what he called a mission from the President of the United States. <laughs> 29-year-old Corey Johnson of Ocala stole a Ford F-150 from Riviera Beach, Florida, three days before he drove it to Patrick Space Force Base. base. Yeah. Patrick Space Force Base. When Johnson tried to get on base, he claimed the President told him in his mind that he needed to take the vehicle and warn government officials that, they were, that the U.S. was going to be fighting aliens and Chinese dragons. 
<laughs> Imagine the gate guard sitting there like, what the hell? What the hell's going on here? He was arrested and booked in Brevard County Jail. He was charged with grand theft of a motor vehicle. Bond was set at $3,000. <laughs> what does he want to be, like Will Smith? The, the, that's what I was going to say. You know this guy. His In his mind, after he hit that meth pipe, right? Yeah. He was like... <laughs> he hit the meth pipe. Come on, he was definitely on meth. Who would do that? Yeah. He was like, oh my God, it came to me. Uh, <laughs> I got to go tell Space Force right now. <laughs> <laughs> Come, you gotta, you gotta check out his mugshot too. <laughs> let, let me take a butcher's. Oh my god! I like that shirt. Is that what they give inmates in down in Florida? It's not a badge. That looks comfy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah. better than an orange jumpsuit that we they take, take it up they, here. They take care of them down there. <laughs> well, there's probably a lot of them. <laughs> Dude, that is hilarious, though. I, I, where is the Chinese dragons coming, though, if you're fighting aliens? I know. Like, what? Dude, he must have had some great meth. Holy. <laughs> he was he was in a different world. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I'll have what he's having. Yeah. That was his mission right there. He had, yeah. to, he had to tell everybody. He had to warn. He was saving the world. Exactly. Like you said, he was Will Smith in Independence Day. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I think I would be less shocked over aliens than I would be over Chinese, Chinese dragons. dragons. It's like, what the fuck? I, uh, no, I, okay. I feel like an, I would believe aliens over yeah. Chinese dragons. Yeah, yeah. It's that, you know, he probably knows something we don't. He might be right. Shit, we're fucked. <laughs> 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 All right. All right. So this episode, I am going to warn you right now. I don't even want to. Uh, yeah. This is by far probably the worst story that I I've ever done. Now we I did this originally with. The serial holic. Yep. So we're just gonna redo it and put our little spin on it. But like, this is a major like. Yeah, that warning. Not safe for work. Don't. Yeah, don't, don't, don't be listening to this out loud. Yeah, or with the kids and everything. <laughs> with the kids. Are... Now the actual audio of the the rape and murder has never been made public. Yep. However, NBC News was doing coverage of the of the case, and they were out in the hallway outside the courtroom. And they actually recorded, you could hear it yeah. in the courtroom. There were people coming out. They were, like, crying. They were, like, freaking out. People just pouring out of the courtroom because they couldn't handle it. But the, the audio did pick up portion of, of this. While the doors were open. While the doors were open. And later in the episode, I will play... A snippet. A snippet. That's all you need, to. Yeah. So, just be warned. Be careful. Don't listen to this around your kids. And we'll get into chapter one. Life was carefree in California during the year of 1977. Our country was still going through a sense of the political and sexual revolution that was born in the 1960s. And people were open to all cultures of life than they ever have before. This was more apparent in the teenagers during this time. Still influenced by the summer of love, Teens were experimenting in sex and drugs, where an invitation to drink beer or smoke weed was enough to earn yourself a new friend, however temporary it was. These teens were also naive to the real world, as this was the decade of the serial killer. The media was flooded with monikers like the Son of Sam, the Genesee River Killer, the Hillside Strangler, the Coed Killer, and the Killer Clown. In fact, the 1970s had well over 100 known serial killers throughout the U.S. and California was certainly a breeding ground. 1977 was the year Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris sparked a partnership in the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. During their time in prison, they would develop a plan to rape, torture, and kill unsuspecting teens, and when they were released in 1978, the media would soon have a new moniker. The Toolbox Killers. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born in 1940 to a couple who had chosen to not have children. He was placed in an orphanage and was soon adopted. Bittaker moved often as a child and failed to develop any meaningful or lasting relationships with his peers. He first found himself on the wrong side of the law when he was caught shoplifting at the age of 12. He would go on to commit several other similar crimes, 
and would be in and out of juvenile detention for a good part of his teen years. He would later claim that his criminal behavior was a call for attention, as he felt he lacked love as a child. Bideker would find school boring and tedious and dropped out at the age of 17. It would later be discovered that he had an IQ of 138, which would explain why he didn't feel challenged in his schoolwork. After he dropped out, he committed several other offenses, which would include car theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. He was sent to the California Youth Authority until the age of 18. Roy Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado in 1948. His parents, who had not intended to conceive him, were forced into marriage to avoid the social stigma of the time. His father worked in a scrapyard, and his mother, a drug addict, was unemployed. From the moment of his birth, it was evident that his parents didn't want him. He was neglected often and would bounce between living with his parents and foster homes throughout his childhood. He would recall his experiences from his time spent in foster homes and would describe years of being denied sufficient food and clothing and in one instance, sexual abuse. While visiting a female family member when he was 16, he made sexual advances towards her. She reported this event to his father and in turn, became violent with Norris. He stole his father's car and drove to the Rocky Mountains to kill himself by injecting air into his veins. He failed. He was later apprehended as a runaway and placed back into the care of his parents, who abruptly informed him that he was no longer wanted. He dropped out of school and joined the Navy in 1965 and deployed to Vietnam in 1969. During his tour, he would experiment with heroin and marijuana, and he was discharged from the Navy after he was accused and arrested for several sexual assaults. So the prison where they were both sent to, it wasn't segregated like it is today, you know, separating the sex offenders from gen pop, from... High profile. High profile, you know. So in the 70s, there was medium and low security inmates, and they were housed together, which is how Bideker and Norris first came together. Now, Bideker was a low-level thief, never really escalated to that type of, you know, violent crime. And Norris was serving time for a series of sexual assaults. So that's how they came together. A callback to, from our previous, from one of our previous episodes, the Cheshire Murders. Mm -hmm. Very similar, you know, those those two. (laughs) Yeah, never would have met if they weren't both crackheads. Yeah. Well, no, I was also insinuating that, like, one had the sexual desires where the other was... The other was a, you know, a thief. A thief. Like a a criminal thief. And the other guy had... Weird desires. Weird desires. (laughs) And they kind of influenced each other to go on. Exactly. No, I gotcha. Now, Bideker, when he first got out of prison uh, when he was 18, uh, he discovered that his adoptive family had moved to another state. Just up and left. We're like, we're sick of you. We're done. We're not dealing with your bullshit anymore. We're out of here. And he never saw them ever again. So I don't blame the family. I'd be, you know, because this dude was in and out of freaking juvie, yeah, constantly. I mean, chalk one up too for another individual that we've had, a, like that we're talking about in this show. High IQ, yeah. dropped out of school with 138 IQ. Yeah, it's like every single one of them. Now with, with the high IQ thing, the reason he was such a failure in school is because he's what they believe is that he wasn't challenged. Yeah, you know, he's just like whatever. This stuff is stupid. You know. Now with Norris. He first got in trouble in 1969 while he was in the Navy, and uh, he sexually assaulted a woman and tried to assault another woman in her car. He was released after trying to break into a woman's home, and doctors diagnosed him with schizoid personality disorder. And they were like, you know what? You're not cut out for the Navy. So what do you think the Navy would do? Ah, you can't. They wouldn't give him a dishonorable discharge. No? They would probably honorably discharge him and just let him go. That's exactly what they did. Yeah, I mean, they they can't hold it against you, especially if you got a diagnosed. Like, if you're diagnosed something, they're not they're not going to give you a dishonorable discharge. But or, wouldn't there be maybe like a medical discharge or something? I mean, I don't think there is. There might be. It's, yeah, Actually, it's I'm like four F. It's called four F. You're not fit for duty. But they were like, eh, we'll honor- honorably discharge you. You're good. Have fun in the real world. A different so, time too. Yeah. So we'll go into chapter two where they start devising their plan to uh, murder and rape people. 
The paths of Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris were profoundly different, but would remain parallel leading up to their fateful meeting. Bittaker was in and out of prison since being released from juvenile detention, mostly for shoplifting and car theft. What would bring him to California Men's Colony was after he stabbed a supermarket employee who accused him of shoplifting. Meanwhile, Norris was in and out of prison and mental institutions for a variety of sexual misconducts ranging from assault to rape. Norris would go on to rape again, and this time, he was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon after he repeatedly struck his victim in the head with a large rock. For this, he was sent to the California Men's Colony. Bittaker and Norris weren't close at first, as Bittaker tended to keep to himself, and Norris was involved with the biker gangs and sold drugs while in prison. They became acquainted during some free time when Norris showed Bittaker how to make jewelry. Their relationship was solidified when Bittaker saved Norris on two occasions. Both instances were the result of Norris being attacked. The two became inseparable, and Norris would brag to him about his sexual exploits. Intrigued, Bittaker divulged some of his own fantasies, claiming if he had ever raped a woman, he would kill them so there wouldn't be any witnesses. These talks fueled the hunger inside Bittaker, and fate was set. The two began to lay out a plan that upon release, they would kidnap, rape, torture, and kill girls in the age range of 13 to 19, with the ultimate goal of at least one from each age. Bittaker was released in October of 1978 and found a job as a machinist making $1,000 per week, which would be close to $3,800 per week with today's inflation. Self-described as a loner, he would become popular in his neighborhood as being a generous man who donated his money to Salvation Army and would buy large amounts of fast food and deliver it to the homeless. He was also popular with teenagers as he would always have an endless supply of alcohol and weed. Norris was released in January of 1979. He moved in with his mother and found work as an electrician. Shortly after his release, Norris received a letter from Bittaker to rekindle their plans and the two met in February. At this meeting, they discussed several plans, including the type of vehicle they should drive. They decided on purchasing a silver 1977 GMC cargo van. It was windowless, and the sliding side door would make it easier to pull up on their victims and kidnap them. They both put their money together and purchased the van, which Bittaker would name the Murder Mac. They would customize the inside with a makeshift bed, a cooler for alcohol to tempt teenagers to come inside for a drink, and a toolbox. You know, we talked about Norris being uh, discharged from the Navy. Not too long after he was discharged, he was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon after beating a woman he was stalking at San Diego State University. So rather than sending him to prison, they sent him to a Tascadero State Hospital for five years and classified him as mentally disturbed sex offender. Makes sense? Yeah. Now, while there, doctors miraculously declared that he was rehabilitated and said he would no longer be a threat to society. He's solved! Yep. And he was released in 1975. Now, if you recall from our Ed Kemper episode, where was he after he killed his grandparents? Wait, it wasn't the same place, was it? Yes. He was sent to a Tascadero wow, State Hospital. Yes, it was Tascadero. Oh, dude, they have, they have a horror. Whoever that doctor was. <laughs> they're not doing a good job sending people back into the... No. You have been saved. <laughs> they're like, here. What a crazy It's like the old-timey doctors, you know. Yeah. They're like, here, have some cocaine. Do to, some cocaine about it. Yeah, do that. There's, there's ghosts in your bones. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, so it goes to show the lack of understanding for mental illness back in the uh, yeah. I mean, we still 60s don't, and we 70s. We still don't have an understanding of it, you know? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, I saw that and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, so I I have to look up. I, I want to. I'm actually curious. I didn't look it up, but I want to to see if Kemper and Norris were there at the same time. Seventy? No, no, they weren't. They, yeah, they would. 
Well, no, maybe because he was there for five years. Kemper was released in seventy two. Yeah, because Kemper wasn't there for that long. No, if I'm not mistaken, he, he wasn't. Was, he wasn't he there was, for five years. He was there from fifteen to twenty one. Oh, and I think he was released in seventy two or seventy three. So they maybe. actually might have been there together. That's crazy. Wow. What a weird... What a small world. Wow. So basically, um, you know, if you want to become a serial killer, just go to uh, the Tuscadero State Hospital. Bedwetter. (laughs) Bedwetter arson. 5150 at Tuscadero. Just go to a Tuscadero. You know, one thing unrelated to, you know, crime that stood (laughs) out to me uh, is that he made $1,000 per week. In 1979, yeah, so, uh, yep, 78. But what's crazy about that too is nowadays, if you go to jail, you're you're done. Yeah, you're, unless yeah. you create your own business or do something like that, you can't just go find a job as a felon. Right. It's crazy how times have changed. Like that is almost like a sentence where you know you're going to be struggling yeah. for the rest of your life unless you have some sort of skill or trade or something. Yeah, a ama- like a thousand dollars a week in 78. Balling. He had he was loaded. Bitteker and Norris, they wouldn't start their plan right away. You know, they had, you know, homework to do. So from April to June of 1979, they would allegedly cruise the beaches and highways picking up t- teenage girls. You know, they would party, they would smoke weed, drink. And... You want to smoke some weed? Right. <laughs> so, and they'd let them go without a scratch. You know, this was just practice. So they, they wanted to hone their skills and they were quite successful with their laid back, good time approach. And, of course, you know, with the drugs and alcohol. Now The van, too. Oh, yeah, the that van. That stereotypical yeah. serial killer van. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got a bed in the back, baby. Ugh. Yeah. So they also needed a place to commit their crimes and dispose their bodies. And Bitteker knew just a place. A place where he used to go with his youth group when he was a child. And that was the San Gabriel Mountains. So him and Norris would travel up to the San Gabriel Mountains... And they found a fire road, which would be perfect. So Bitteker broke off the lock that was on the gate and replaced it with his own lock mm-hmm. so they could have access to it whenever they wanted. Now their uh, their plan was set. So in Chapter 3, we'll go into their first abduction. On June 24th, 1979... 16-year-old Lucinda Schaefer was attending a youth group meeting at a Presbyterian church. At around 7.30 p.m., the meeting concluded, and Lucinda was walking back to her grandmother's house when Bitteker spotted the young teen. He pointed her out to Norris by saying, There's a cute little blonde. They pulled over and made several attempts to have her enter the van, first by offering her ride, then by offering her weed and alcohol. The ruse they had practiced for months didn't work with Lucinda. Being a devoted Presbyterian, declined all of their requests. This didn't sway Bitteker and Norris. They drove a short distance up the road and pulled to the side. Norris opened up the sliding door and hopped out. With his head and shoulders inside the van, they waited as Lucinda passed by. Norris made his move and grabbed Lucinda, dragging her into the van. He then bound her arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape. When they reached the fire road, Norris told Bitteker to take a walk for an hour and savagely raped her. When Bitteker returned, it was his turn to rape her as Norris took a walk. Norris returned and raped her again. Both would later pin the murder of Lucinda on each other, but according to court documents, it was Norris who made the first attempt. Lucinda, in a manner of acceptance of her fate, asked Norris for a moment of prayer before they would take her life. They both laughed at her. Norris proceeded to strangle Lucinda, and after seeing the look in her eyes, released and jumped out of the van to vomit. Bitteker quickly took over and stopped after Lucinda began convulsing. He then wrapped a coat hanger around her neck and twisted it with a pair of pliers he retrieved from the toolbox. Lucinda was dead and denied of her wish to have a moment with her lord. They wrapped her in a shower curtain and threw her over a cliff into a canyon. Norris, worried someone would find her, was assured by Bitteker that, quote, the animals will eat her up. 
So at first, when Lucinda Schaefer was kidnapped, she was screaming so loud that Bitteker had to turn the volume up on the radio to drown out her pleas for help. But Bitteker would later say that soon after her kidnapping, uh, Lucinda, and I quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. That's horrible. Now, whether or not that's true, who knows? As we discussed, she was very religious. Yeah, it's almost like she thought she knew she was going to die right. that day. So she made her acceptance with God, and and she actually asked to, they would give her a moment to pray to God. They couldn't even give her that. They basically laughed at her and started strangling her. So It's funny, too, because, you know, they, they've planned this for so long, but you, you throw up when you see the look in her eyes the first time, too. Yeah. So, like, it, it shows a little human moment in two animals. And the fact that, ah, it's crazy, that there's something there that makes you realize you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And, he sti- and he still, right. you know, continued. Well, I think the whole thing was, and part of the plan was not to let any of these girls survive, regardless. Yeah. It just kind of dies into where their psyche was at the time of the planning and at the time of the actual murder. I don't know. I Bitter was like, God damn it, Norris, come here, I got it. Which is kinda it's kinda weird because, you know, when you look at their history, Norris is the one that's already had, you know, the assaults right. and sexual abuse and Right. And Bitterker was you know, he did he did end up uh, stabbing somebody, but it was mostly just petty crime, thefts and whatnot. So who who was the mastermind in all of this? You know what I mean? And as the story goes, you know, you kind of look to Bitteker as being the instigator, but then Norris was the one who was had sexual urges, and, urges, and, and whatever. Yeah. So, but we'll talk about the next kidnappings in chapter four. Andrea Joy Hall grew up in Akron, Ohio. She had moved to Los Angeles in February of 1978, and she wrote her family often. She had been unable to find work in her new town and made whatever money she could by donating her blood. Two weeks after Lucinda's murder, on July 8, 1979, Bitteker and Norris spotted the 18-year-old, who was hitchhiking on the Pacific Coast Highway. They began to slow down to offer her a ride when another vehicle moved in to pick her up. Andrea entered that vehicle, and they took off. Angered and determined, Bitteker and Norris followed the vehicle to Redondo Beach, where she got out of the car. Andrea still needed a ride, though, and this deadly duo were more than happy to offer her one. Norris moved to the back of the van, so it appeared Bitteker was alone. They pulled up alongside of Andrea, and Bitteker offered her a ride. She accepted. Being that it was a hot July day, Bitteker offered Andrea a cold drink from the cooler in the back. When she went to go retrieve it, Norris pounced. She put up quite a fight, as Norris recalls, but he was able to subdue her by twisting her arm behind her back as she screamed in pain. Norris then gagged her and bound her wrists and ankles. The pair drove Andrea to the killing ground in the San Gabriel Mountains. This time it was Bitteker who raped her twice, and Norris once. During Bitteker's second assault of Andrea, Norris thought he saw headlights. Bitteker covered Andrea's mouth and dragged her into nearby bushes as Norris went in search of the alleged vehicle. When he returned, the three traveled deeper into the mountains. Andrea, naked, was forced up a hill where Bitteker made her perform oral sex on him and then told her to pose for pictures that he took with his Polaroid camera. They then drove to a third location, and again, Bitteker forced Andrea up another hill as Norris went to the store to buy alcohol. When Norris returned from the store, Andrea was nowhere to be found. All right, so when Norris left to go investigate the source of the headlights, um, he left Bitteker and Andrea alone together. When Norris returned, Bitteker produced two additional pictures of Andrea, both of which expressed absolute terror on her face. Oof. So Bitteker explained to Norris that he made Andrea beg for her life and give him reasons not to kill her. So as Andrea was pleading, Bitteker shoved an ice pick through her ear. 
the first one didn't quite penetrate all the way through. So now Andrea, she's obviously thriving in pain. She's laying on the ground. She's still alive. So Bitteker turns her over, shoves the ice pick through her other ear, this time stomping on her head until the handle broke off. Uh, Bitteker then strangled her and threw her over a cliff. Do you realize how painful, like, rupturing your eardrum is? Just generally rupturing your eardrum. Never mind having an ice pick jam through it and into your brain. That, out of everything we've discussed, that is probably one of the worst ways that someone has died. Yeah. Like, I've never ruptured my eardrum, but just, like, you know, reading about it and, and whatnot, it's probably the most excruciating pain you could suffer. Oof. Like, it, it's just it, tremendous. Not, not to men like, the emotional torture that she's gone through until to, to that point, too. Right. Just standing on a cliff and forcing, forcing her to do oral sex while he takes pictures of her and stuff like that. Well, yeah. she, she was already raped three times at this point mm-hmm. on a, the side of a mountain. Yeah, these dudes are fucked. So we'll go into Chapter 5 where uh, Norris and Bitteker pick up two young girls. Again on September 3rd, 1979, Bitteker and Norris were traveling along the Pacific Coast Highway where they came across two girls sitting at a bus stop. 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam and 13-year-old Jacqueline Lamp had been walking and hitchhiking when they stopped at the bus stop near Hermosa Beach to sit on the bench and rest. They pulled up alongside the girls and offered them a ride. They accepted. Once in the van, Norris brought out some marijuana and the four smoked for a while until both girls noticed they were no longer on the PCH. They made it known that they wanted out of the van as Bitteker and Norris both came up with excuses as to why they were heading to the San Gabriel Mountains. These girls could not be persuaded. Jacqueline attempted to open the sliding door, and as she did, Norris hit her in the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights, knocking her unconscious. He then attacked Jackie and began to gag and bind her. Jacqueline woke up and again tried for the door. She succeeded, though temporarily. Norris jumped out, grabbed her, and pulled her back into the van. Bitteker, aware that this all occurred where there could have been witnesses, parked the van in a secluded area. He jumped in the back, punched Jacqueline in the face, and assisted Norris in tying her up. Bitteker continued on their journey to the San Gabriel Mountains, where over the course of two days, they repeatedly raped, beat, and tortured the girls, with Jackie receiving the brunt of the abuse. They took turns sleeping in the van with the girls, while the other was a lookout. Bitteker would take several pictures of Gillian, both with clothes and without, and even took pictures of Norris as he lay naked with her. For his part, Norris would take pornographic pictures of Jacqueline. This is the first known instance in which Bitteker brought out an audio recorder while he was raping Jackie. He forced Jackie to pretend that she was his cousin and encouraged her to scream out in pain. Bitteker would take the audio recording of his raping of Jackie and bury it in a cemetery. That recording has never been found. Alright, so when, when they kidnapped Jackie and Jacqueline... It was on a weekend. So neither of them had work. Neither of them had places to go. So they actually held them for a couple of days up in the mountains. You know, they took turns sleeping with them, raping them, all this other kind of stuff. Two days of hell. Now, Jackie got the brunt of the torture. Do you think because she was the older daughter, that's why she got most of the brunt? Do you think there was like any remorse there that uh, they were... Torturing a 13-year-old girl? I mean, 15 is still a child. Right. But you, do you know what I mean? Do you think it's anything? I don't think it has anything to do with, like, conscience. You yeah. know? I think maybe they both found her more appealing or yeah. whatever. I have no idea. But, yeah, she definitely took the, the brunt of it. And Bitteker would stab her breasts with the ice pick while raping her. And he also tore off her nipples with a pair of pliers. So after the two days of rape and torture, the end was near, or the end, the end has, had come for Jackie and Jacqueline. Jackie was pulled out of the van, and she was stabbed in each ear with an ice pick and then strangled. Now, with Jackie dead, 
Jacqueline was dragged out of the van and she was defiant. You know, 13 year old girl, she was, she put up a fight. You know, she wasn't going out like that. Norris would beat her over the head with a sledgehammer. Thought she was dead, but she opened her eyes and, and gasped, which kind of startled Norris and Bittaker. So Norris went back to beating her with the sledgehammer over the head while Bittaker strangled her. And when she finally died, uh, they threw both of them over the embankment. Not to make, you know, light of anything, but do you remember when we were kids and, like, the cool thing to do was give each other, like, titty twisters or whatever? Yeah. You know what I mean? Those fucking hurt. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, damn, dude, what the fuck? Now imagine that with a pair of pliers. Fuck no. Animals. Like, you, you, uh, you have to be severely messed up. Like, sadistic. These, yeah, it's sadistic. You know, there, there's, like, other killers, like you said, the prominent, like... People up on the wall here, you know. No, they didn't put their victims through this. That, you know, you know, they strangled them, they killed them, they they. Right, I mean, obviously, I mean, what they what all serial killers do is just fucking horrific. Yeah, these guys but, are torturers, though. Yeah, they, they enjoy. They got off on screams, screaming, and like, and just thinking applying. Of ridiculous amounts of pain and the ice pick thing too is is like that was a very particular thing that he was connected with yeah he always used it and and that's all and then like the thing with andrea previously he broke off the handle on the ice pick yeah which means he bought a couple of them he had to go out and get some get another one you know what i mean like this is like like i don't know if you want to call this crazy like i think this is a very sane intentional act like if you can go out and buy new ice picks to now use on, on a new victim. Yeah. I'm also thinking, you know, later down the road when eventually the jury does, you know, they these two would get caught. The poor jury, anybody who's inside that courtroom that has to see all the evidence too. Mm-hmm. They, they must, they're scarred for life. Yeah, it's awful. So we're going to chapter six and this one is, ugh, this is, this is where we're going to talk about the audio recording and what they do is... Unimaginable. Yeah, we. I mean, we told you guys that this, these two, you know, this episode was going to be rough. So we'll go into chapter six now. On October 31st, 1979, 16-year-old Shirley Ledford had attended a friend's Halloween party in a suburb of Los Angeles. She walked to a nearby gas station looking for a ride home when a familiar face approached. What could be assumed as a cordial greeting took place as Shirley stood there talking with Lawrence Bittaker. Lawrence and Shirley knew each other, with Shirley working part-time as a waitress at the restaurant Bittaker would often frequent. Remember, Bittaker was popular in these parts, especially with the teenagers. With an offer to take her home, Shirley entered the van. While Norris was distracting Shirley with an offer to smoke weed, Bittaker pulled down a secluded street. Norris jumped Shirley and held a knife to her as he bound and gagged her with duct tape. Bittaker and Norris switched places, and Norris began driving aimlessly around town as Bittaker tormented Shirley in the back of the van. It was then Bittaker instructed Norris to turn on the tape recorder. This audio recording was found in the tape player of Bittaker's van. It has never been made public. However, during the trial... NBC had cameras set up outside the courtroom. For a brief moment, you could hear Shirley's screams. I will play a portion of this event soon, but I will remind you, discretion is strongly advised. For over an hour, Bittaker brutally tortured Shirley Ledford. He and Norris then switched spots, as Shirley lay crying and moaning in the back of the van. With Shirley's genitals and rectum viciously torn by pliers, Norris couldn't rape her. He did, however, force the already agonized girl to perform oral sex on him. Once he climaxed, he turned the recorder back on. This is when Norris began his own torture of Shirley. He used a hammer to shatter Shirley's elbow and continued to use the pliers to rip off pieces of Shirley's flesh. After two hours of rape and torture... Norris wrapped the coat hanger around Shirley's neck and twisted it with the pliers. They both later claimed that Shirley didn't put up much of a fight as she died.
in a final act of disrespect, they decided rather than bring Shelly's body to their usual dumping grounds, they would leave her body for everybody to see. They wanted to see the shock value of the general public. So they selected a random house and placed her body in an ivy bed, stock naked, with her arms and legs spread open, just defiling her, her corpse. Now, she was found by a jogger the next morning. In all, uh, Shelley's injuries were so severe that the medical examiner had a difficult time determining which injury was the cause of death, and they ultimately declared that she died by strangulation. In addition to the signs of rape, her injuries included blunt force trauma to the head, face, and breasts. Blunt force trauma to your breasts. Like, that, that's serious fucking damage, right? She had puncture wounds to her breasts and deep lacerations to her fingers. Her elbow sustained multiple fractures when Norris was smashing it with the sledgehammer. Yep. Her clitoris, labia, vulva, vagina, and rectum had numerous tears caused by the pliers used by Bitteker. Now, all of this was when she was alive. Yes. And still forcing her to perform sex acts on them while, if you think about it, they couldn't even rape that poor girl mm -hmm. because of the damage that they insist, like, that they like inflicted on her. Yeah. That's horrible. That's absolutely horrible. And this is supposed to be like somebody that Shelly knew. Like her and Shelly, her and uh, Bitteker knew each other. Yeah. You know? The, I think the worst part in, back in that episode is when you said that they later claimed that Shirley didn't put up much of a fight as she died. Yeah. That tells every, like... Even into his later years before he died, like he would claim, he would like sugarcoat the whole process. You know, like all these girls were willing, all these girls, you know... They they liked the torture, you know. Yeah, I'm they, sure they enjoyed it. No, bro, no. Let me fucking stick an ice pick in your fucking ear. Yeah. Let me rip your nipples off with a fucking pair of pliers. Yep. You know what I mean? Fuck you. Nobody fucking enjoys that, you piece of shit. But so to this point, <clears throat> Shirley was the only victim that had been found. They didn't know about the others yet. Now. In the next chapter, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, the trial and, and everything. But this is the point where I'm going to include the audio. Now, if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead a couple of minutes. But I think it's important to hear just a snippet. So, one, one to stay true to the story. And two, to put people in, you know what I mean? In yeah, when, when I heard that clip too I, I the instant my instant thought was that was five seconds mm -hmm. and I, I couldn't I just like I had to like no, yeah. alright that's enough that's and enough this went on for hours a met, or two days in some situations all right these guys mm -hmm. and these guys were doing like doing this to individuals repeatedly that yeah. like that it makes me panicked hearing that how, how could you be in the van with that for mm -hmm. two days w without you know I mean, like feeling for, something for, for me, right? And, and same thing with me is like hearing that for two seconds is just like my stomach automatically turns. Yeah. Like, how the fuck could you withstand? Ugh, I don't know. But we'll we'll play the audio. If you don't want to hear it, fast forward, and then we'll go right into chapter seven. This episode of Criminal as Fuck contains descriptions of disturbing graphic violence, which may be offensive to some people. Listener discretion is advised. month, Norris reacquainted himself with a former friend from the California men's colony, Joseph Jackson. He would brag about the rapes and murder that he and Bitteker had done, including a rape they committed in September, but she had escaped. Obviously disturbed, Jackson would report this information to his attorney, who advised him to go to the police. When speaking to the detectives, Jackson would give them numerous facts about the case including how Lucinda had left one shoe behind when she was kidnapped. But the one that stood out to them 
was the silver van. The victim who had escaped, Robin Robeck, couldn't provide much information as she was sprayed with pepper spray when she was abducted. Robeck, who had come from Oregon to visit family at the time of her abduction and rape, had given one clear description. They drove a silver van. Police traveled to Oregon with a lineup, and Robin pointed out Lauren Spinnaker and Roy Norris as her assailants. Surveillance was placed on Norris, and when he was witnessed selling marijuana, a violation of his parole, he was arrested. Police also went to Bittaker's motel room and brought him in for questioning. At first, both men denied the allegations. But when detectives told Norris he would be charged with rape and murder and face a death penalty, he sang like a bird. Upon Norris's confession, police obtained search warrants for both of their homes and the silver van. In Norris's home, they found Shirley Ledford's bracelet. Inside Bittaker's home, detectives found the photographs he had taken of Andrea Hall and Jackie Gilliam, along with numerous bottles of acid that he was to use in their next abduction. With evidence mounting against both men, Norris agreed to cooperate with the promised prosecutors wouldn't pursue the death penalty. Norris led them to the locations he believed the bodies were dumped. They found the skeletal remains of Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp scattered over a vast area by wild animals. Lucinda Schaefer and Andrea Hall have never been found. Bittaker was eventually tried and convicted for the murders of Lucinda Schaefer, Andrea Hall, Jackie Gilliam, Jacqueline Lamp, and Shirley Ledford. He received the death penalty, originally scheduled for 1989, but it never happened. He stayed on death row until his passing in 2019. For Norris's cooperation, prosecutors petitioned the court for a life in prison. In a decision that would shock the victim's family and the surrounding community, the judge sentenced Norris to 45 years to life. Norris was up for parole in 2019, but was denied. He died in prison in February of 2020. When they searched Bittaker's apartment, they found 500 Polaroid pictures of girls at Redondo and Hermosa Beach, as well as uh, Burbank High School. Now, police had the daunting task of identifying the girls in the pictures found in, the, in their homes and in the van. So police scoured the beaches, schools, and local area and compared them with missing persons. Now, they were able to identify all of the girls of the, in the pictures, except for 19. 19 pictures out of 500 that cross paths with Bittaker and Norris who were never identified. So it raises the question now that these girls just like run away, you know, or were they actual victims? victims? Yeah. So that's, that's something that's never been determined. Now in, inside the van, they found the sled, a sledgehammer, pliers, and numerous other tools a bag filled with lead weights, a jar of Vaseline, necklaces that belonged to two of the victims, and the recording of the torture of Shirley Ledford. That was actually left in the tape player of the van. So they were... Which means they're driving around town... Listening. Listening to this to this tape and getting off on it. In the trial, they obviously had to display all this evidence. Yep. They played the audio tape. But prior to that... They had to first identify who was the girl on the tape. Could have been Shirley, could have been whoever. Yeah. So Shirley's mother had to listen to the recording in order to identify her daughter's voice. Can you fucking imagine? I wouldn't want to do it. I, I, I don't know. Put myself in that situation. I would, I would, it's almost like closure. At the same time, but I, I you know, but honestly, yeah. think about it. Like you would, it's like the same, it's the same when, you know, you, people go to their, when their kids get murdered or, you know I mean? They, they, the parents are at every single court hearing. They want some kind of, but at the same time, you're, they're torturing themselves too. Oh. 
I don't know. I, I don't. That is something. Me right now, I wouldn't want to hear. I wouldn't want to hear. It. I I wouldn't want to because you have to that that voice that those screams are gonna live in your head forever. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, it, it's it's funny too that the murder Mac was what eventually brought them down. They you know yeah. they they got very cocky at the end of it. Even leaving her body out showed that they were like you know they got a god god complex pretty fast. Yeah, and they, they they these guys weren't it wasn't twenty plus victims at that point, and you're already thinking rolling around thinking you can get away with everything. Yep. And then Norris running his mouth. Yeah, it's it's you know he he's switched up real quick too. Yep. And you know you're screwed at that point. You're, to try to save yourself from the death penalty, you're, you're going to rat out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and in his whole defense and his his story was like, oh, I was just a participant. I wasn't the mastermind. Blah, blah. Yeah. But then again, you're the one going around bragging that you're doing this to all these women. Yeah. You know what I mean? They both participated in every... They thought they were smart by downplaying everything, sugarcoating everything. But you're both fucking like... It doesn't help too that you Evil. you recorded pictures, yeah. audio recording of everything. Yeah, you just yep. set yourself up too. So that'll do it for the Toolbox Killers. If you like what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a review. And don't forget to become a criminal on Patreon. Visit Patreon.com/backslash/CriminalAF. There's five tiers. You can donate as little as five dollars a month to help the podcast. Everyone, that it's everyone will receive early release of all of our episodes. Ramirez and Above will receive our blooper reels. Kemper and Above will receive Patreon-only monthly bonus episodes of True Crime Fast Facts. Bundy and Above will receive a quarterly gift from us, as well as an exclusive I'm a Criminal on Patreon t-shirt to rep your favorite podcast, the number one true crime podcast <laughs> in the world. <laughs> And Zodiac subscribers will receive an executive producer credit for every single episode for the length of their membership, as well as a virtual guest host spot on a future episode. Oh, come on. So much stuff. Links to our Patreon, PayPal, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description. And go go check out the merch, too. It's I'm telling you, there's some it's cool fire. stuff in there. It's fire. <laughs> also, too, you know, check us out on YouTube. We have video versions of this podcast. You know, me and Dave are very animated, you know, so if you want to check that out, YouTube Criminal AF. Yes, sir. That'll do it for this episode of Criminal AF. Signing off from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel. Take care until next time. See ya. See ya.